0: KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.
1: A citywide effort to address systemic racism.
2: Equal is, of course, important, but equity, making up for historic disinvestment, is difficult.
1: I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. An examination of how sexual assault allegations in nursing homes have gone ignored.
2: This is perhaps the worst and most horrifying story of serial sexual assault that I have ever heard in the long-term care setting.
1: And a look at why San Diego's inflation is among the highest in the nation, plus a delay stands in the way of expanding tribal land. That's ahead on Midday Edition. This week, San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria announced a plan he hopes will be the first step in addressing systemic racism against San Diego's Black community. It's called the Black Empowerment Plan, and it focuses on housing, economic mobility, the effects of climate change, police reform, educational barriers, and health outcomes. The priorities for the plan were set by a nine-member advisory group of Black community leaders, Mayor Todd Gloria joins us now to talk about that plan. Mayor Gloria, welcome.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: So you've said systemic problems remain within our nation that have often left Black communities disenfranchised and disregarded. What systemic problems have left San Diego's Black community disenfranchised?
2: Well, there are many, Jane. The other day when we announced this particular plan, there were three statistics that I used to sort of underline the way that our black community uh, experiences our San Diego differently than other parts of our community. One is that two thirds of blacks uh, residents live in zip codes with higher than average unemployment rates. One in five of our unsheltered population are black despite uh, African-Americans representing 6% of our overall city's population. And that black residents are twice as likely to be hospitalized or to die of COVID-19 than white San Diegans. Uh, these are three statistics that really underline, again, the different experience of Black San Diegans uh, here in San Diego, and is a reason why this empowerment plan was necessary to put forward, not because we can solve a century's worth of discrimination and prejudice with one plan, but that we have to start taking affirmative steps to try to address these inequities in order to be a city that works for all of us.
1: And, you know, at the top of everyone's mind is police reform as the Derek Chauvin trial continues after Dante Wright was killed during a Minnesota traffic stop and after an army lieutenant in Virginia was repeatedly pepper sprayed during a traffic stop. Your plan highlights 11 police reform proposals here in San Diego. Have recent events around the country made this a top priority for you?
2: J.D. listed three situations. We know that there are many, many more than that. Some that even happen here in our local region and we wanna do better. I want our city to be a leader when it comes to public safety uh, and really uh, making sure that we're doing this in a 21st century uh, form. Uh, so yeah, some of those events uh, certainly are instructive of the changes that we need to make. I would note that the city has been working in this direction, uh, whether that's uh, voluntarily through the end of the broader restraint by standing with police department, or by voters demands with the passage of measure B for an independent police review board. These plans, um, that the plan that I released uh, is intended to take the next uh, steps in this process, but we really wanna take the additional steps beyond that. I want San Diego to be a national leader when it comes to public safety. Uh, I want uh, the community to feel safe, and I want us to have the best police department uh, in the United States. Uh, This plan is intended to try and get us closer to those objectives.
1: I'll come back to your proposals on police reform, but now I want to turn to the Black Empowerment Plan you released this week. How will your plan work to fix issues and policies that have caused harm to the Black community? Well,
2: as I mentioned, you know this does not end centuries worth of discrimination overnight, but it is intended to be something that is definable, measurable, and, and uh, accountable. Holding myself, the city council, the rest of the city operation accountable when it comes to progress in this space and we have already seen a couple of uh, steps of progress uh, whether that's the establishment of our climate equity fund which is intended to drive some of our climate related investments into neighborhoods who have traditionally been left out who are, as a result have significant environmental justice concerns. We know that those are often Black and brown communities. Uh, to our recent successful uh, award of a state grant to study uh, cannabis equity fund, recognizing uh, that the Black community uh, bore the disproportionate impacts of criminalization of marijuana, uh, but are not enjoying the benefits now of legalization. And we want to be a city uh, that uh, sort of flips the script on that and allows for more equitable progress. So those are things that we have already done. And this plan really looks to expand upon that and actually make sure that those things actually get accomplished. While the focus has often been on police reform, let's be honest, systemic racism is present in our housing economy, in education, and economic development, and our Black Empowerment Plan is really intended to try and address all the areas where we have identified through our advisory committee at Black San Diegans places where significant improvement is necessary.
1: It seems this plan, it really focuses on providing resources in a way that promotes equality. How does this plan take things a step further to create equity?
2: you're exactly right because there is a difference and i think that many of your listeners uh probably are familiar with the difference but for many san diegans perhaps that they don't that they're that equ- equal is of course important but equity making up for historic disinvestment is difficult the climate equity fund is intended to do that it's intended to say we know that the impacts of climate change will hit certain neighborhoods in the city first and worst And too often, those are our neighborhoods where our Black community lives and where communities of color and communities of concern uh, exist. By creating this particular fund, where we will methodically put dollars into it to invest in infrastructure projects, that will anticipate and hopefully prevent some of the impacts of climate change. That is how you get to equity by having a uh, neighborhood investments, infrastructure funds, again focused on those underinvested neighborhoods. That's important. Having a recreational or summer programming, which is a part of, of the budget plan I'll release tomorrow, again focused on addressing digital divide issues and recreational recreation recreation center hours in those communities, again, speaks to uh, this need for more equity. I think the council is unanimously behind this notion. And so the proposals we'll be putting forward, whether through the Black Empowerment Plan, through the city budget, I think will win strong support. And then that will be the proof to the community that says this isn't just more words on a page. This is real. This is change. And this is happening in San Diego.
1: Now, to go back to police reforms, data collected by Campaign Zero found a twofold disparity in the way the SDPD polices the Black community. Data reveals SDPD officers both stopped and arrested Black people at higher rates and were more likely to use force against Black people in the process of making those arrests. What do you think about that disparity and what solutions are you implementing?
2: Those findings are troubling. Um... I mean, Jay, one of my frustrations with that information is that when I was a city council member several years ago, San Diego State University uh, issued a report that had similar findings of different outcomes and different experiences of law enforcement, depending upon where you live and what you look like. And the reforms uh, that we have announced last week really are intended to try and address that.
1: You mentioned training, anti-bias training. You know, Minnesota, for example, set up a $12 million police training fund after Philando Castile's death. Since then, George Floyd and Dante Wright have both died at the hands of law enforcement. What will San Diego do differently than Minneapolis?
2: What we're saying is, is that clearly we want to do more. We want to go further, again, be a national leader in this regard. Police chief is very supportive of this. The council very supportive of this. I think the community is demanding it. And so we'll do that work. But it isn't just that alone, Jay. We have to do other pieces of this plan that I think are important. And some of this stuff, you know, isn't a capture a lot of attention, but I think it speaks to the touch field look of our of law enforcement in San Diego. By moving our, our office of Homeland Security out of the police department, by forswearing the use of militarized weapons and military surplus, by trying to find better ways to deal with low-level offenses that don't create a, a cycle of incarceration that really allows people to feel like this is a, a, a trap. This is stuff that we will get done here in San Diego. Again, with the hope of being a city that leads on this and a city that other cities will turn to and say, let's follow the way they do it in San Diego because they got it right and we want to do that in our own town.
1: Ultimately, what will be your measure of success for this Black Empowerment Plan?
2: Well, we have some of those statistics I've referred to before. I mean, we want to see rising levels of employment uh, in zip codes where many 5 standing live. live. Uh, we want to see a reduction in on-street homelessness, recognizing that the over-presence of African-Americans amongst our unsheltered population. Uh, we want to see an equitable conclusion to the pandemic uh, and an equitable economic recovery. These will be things that we will see relatively short term. I think we're coming to the end of the pandemic. But I will point out, again, Jade, some of the things that we're doing already. You know, we have been doing pop-up vaccination efforts in the very zip codes that I mentioned to you. And the fact that we're able to drive down infections in those areas are allowing our economy to reopen, our schools to reopen. So some of this we're living out now, uh, but we have to do a lot more of it. And this administration is committed to doing that.
1: work. I've been speaking to Todd Gloria, mayor of San Diego. Mayor Gloria, thank you so much for joining us.
2: My pleasure, Jake. Thank you.
3: Documents reveal that California regulators allowed a nursing assistant to job hop among San Diego area nursing homes, even though they were aware of multiple sexual assault allegations against him. KPBS investigative reporter Amita Sharma has the story.
4: Certified nursing assistant Matthew Flukager warned 62-year-old Gail to keep quiet right after he allegedly raped her twice in one hour at a La Mesa nursing home in January 2020.
1: He already said he knows my address and
4: everything and where I live and all my personal business and then he says
1: so trust me I know you're not going to say anything.
4: your added quote even if you do no one will believe you They love me here. He had reason to think he could sexually assault women in nursing homes with impunity. State records obtained by KPBS show the California Department of Public Health, the very agency that is supposed to protect nursing home residents from predators, knew that Flukiger had allegedly engaged in sexual misconduct three years earlier. But the state still did not rescind his license. In fact, CDPH allowed Flukager to continue to work in nursing homes, even as it investigated additional accusations that he sodomized one woman in 2019, sexually assaulted another six weeks later, and early last year raped Gail who didn't want her last name used. This
2: is perhaps the worst and most horrifying story of serial sexual assault that I have ever heard in the long-term care setting.
4: Mike Dark is a lawyer for California Advocates for Nursing Home Reform.
2: How many women would need to be assaulted before they felt like they needed to take action?
4: CDPH did not revoke Flukager's license to practice as a certified nursing assistant until August, 2020. The agency conceded in a letter to Flukager that month that it actually could have rescinded his license for any one of the four sexual misconduct allegations against him, dating back to 2017. Ernie Tosh, a Texas lawyer who sues nursing homes in abuse cases, says it's a damning self-indictment by CDPH.
5: If each of these four incidents was enough to be revoked,
6: why didn't you revoke it the first time?
4: CDPH declined to answer that question and dozens others. The agency's only comment was a written statement saying it takes sexual assault allegations at nursing homes seriously. CDPH's first chance to take away Flucature's license came shortly after May 2017, when investigators learned that he requested oral sex from a woman in exchange for cigarettes at Parkside Health and Wellness Center in El Cajon. Lawyer Jennifer Fiori says the state should have swiftly removed flucager from caregiving then. That alone is an example of not being trusted to behave appropriately in a situation where you are providing care to someone. In 2019, after another sexual assault allegation, CDPH again bypassed an opportunity to pull Flukeger's license. In that case, then 71-year-old Catherine Gotcher-Girolamo accused the former caregiver of sodomizing her during a diaper change at Avocado Post Acute in El Cajon. Weeks later, was accused of following a woman living at a third alcohol nursing home called San Diego Post-Acute. He resigned and then was quickly hired by Parkway Hills Nursing and Rehabilitation in La Mesa. Soon afterwards, CDPH investigators told Flukerger they had found discrepancies in his statements about the sexual assault allegations against him. But they let him keep his job at Parkway Hills anyway. And three months later, he allegedly raped Gail, who remains traumatized. I always have nightmares. I'm always on guard. She has harsh words for CDPH's handling of the Flukager case. They're lazy and they're liars. They are. They don't like paperwork. They don't do their jobs. Lawyer Tosh says CDPH's legal immunity adds another layer of tragedy.
5: You cannot sue them because they botched this investigation and allowed a serial rapist to run rampant.
4: The San Diego County District Attorney's Office filed five felony sex charges against Flukageur in December after KPBS's stories on the Avocado case. He remains in jail pending a trial.
3: Joining me is KPBS investigative reporter Amitha Sharma. Amitha, welcome. It's good to speak to you, Maureen. Now, this is an incredibly troubling report. Let me ask you, first of all, why can't the California Department of Public Health or its officials be sued if they were negligent in this
4: case? Generally speaking, people who work at governmental agencies and the agencies themselves have immunity from lawsuits if those lawsuits are going after money damages, which they usually are. But that immunity is not Unlimited and the reason why the lawyer Ernie Tosh said you really can't sue is it's next to impossible to win when you're suing the government. Uh, Those cases are super super difficult and the lawyers who do take them that usually ends up being the only kind of work that they do because they are just so complex.
3: Now, are allegations of sexual assault usually enough to get a nursing home caregiver's license revoked?
4: No, they're not. But the allegations are enough to suspend a caregiver's license. And that didn't happen in this case. In order to actually revoke a license, you've got to have a finding of abuse, and that follows an investigation. But then, you know, not every allegation triggers an investigation by the California Department of Public Health. And so it's, it's hit and miss here. And, and, and the other thing, Maureen, that I think is important to mention is there's no state database here. So nursing homes are not required to tell the state when they employ a certified nursing assistant. And so that allows candidates for these jobs to lie about where they worked and whether there were previous allegations against them at those previous jobs.
3: Now, the allegations made against this caregiver are crimes, if they are true. Were they investigated by law enforcement back in 2017 through 2020?
4: Yes, so Parkside Health and Wellness Center contacted the El Cajon Police Department back in 2017, and that's the cigarettes for oral sex trade. And police said that there was nothing that they could do about it. The next time that police were contacted, that we know of at least, regarding Matthew Flukager was in June 2019 when uh, Catherine Gotcha girolamo who lived lived at Avocado Post Acute, accused Flukager of sexually assaulting her during the diaper change.
3: But he was ultimately charged by the San Diego County District Attorney after your initial report on these alleged assaults. What are the charges against Flukager?
4: Matthew Flukager is accused of committing four counts of lewd and lascivious acts on an adult dependent by a caregiver. And there is a fifth related felony charge. What
3: about the care facilities where these incidents allegedly occurred? What was their response to the allegations?
4: They would not comment.
3: So they have had no response as you've been investigating this? Nope. Has Flukinger said anything about the allegations against him?
4: In court, he denies the allegations. He has pleaded not guilty.
3: Are the alleged victims of these assaults, uh, Gail, Catherine, and other women, are they still at the nursing homes where they say the incidents occurred?
4: Gail is not. Catherine is not. And records show that, well, at least criminal prosecution records show that the woman at San Diego Post Acute, who said that Flukager got on top of her, um, she's actually at Avocado Post Acute, where Catherine Gotcher-Girolamo says she was assaulted by Flukager.
3: Now Amitha you must have gotten close to Gail she described a horrible incident to you what's your impression of how she's coping
4: Maureen i interviewed her on a zoom call and she sounded absolutely shattered her her life seems like it's irreparably changed. I think that came through during the interview that you heard excerpts of in the story. She was very very emotional. It was obviously deeply painful for her to recall what happened and there were some pauses during our conversation because of how hard it was for her to remember those details Um, and just as an observer it It felt like she was reliving the trauma of it all.
3: Now, family members have just recently been allowed to visit their loved ones inside nursing homes, the first time since the pandemic shutdown. Is there anything they should be asking about the staff or facility policy to make sure their loved ones are safe?
4: They can ask. It is not clear how accurate The answers will be. I say that because there is a statewide website that's theoretically supposed to help families review how many complaints and categories of those complaints, like abuse, are filed against a particular nursing home. But when I reviewed on that state website how the flukature allegations were recorded. They were not, some of them were not categorized as sexual abuse. One was erroneously categorized as an abuse case of a resident on a resident and one was not listed as substantiated and one wasn't even listed at all. So. There really is no way for a family to rest easy because we know on at least two occasions when Pflugger was accused of sexual misconduct at Parkside and sexual assault at Avocado, he was actually allowed to return to work and the nursing homes did not notify families of the allegations.
3: Again, as I said, incredibly troubling report, Amitha, but thank you so much. I've been speaking with KPBS investigative reporter Amitha Sharma.
4: Thank you, Maureen.
0: KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program. Shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu.
3: This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Hindman. San Diego's housing prices have skyrocketed during the COVID pandemic, and now we find out that other costs, such as gas and food, have also been increasing, bringing San Diego's inflation rate to one of the highest in the nation. Critics of the Biden trillion-dollar stimulus packages warned that inflation might result from such huge boosts to the economy. But local economists say our inflation rate may be more of a reawakening than a red flag. Joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune business reporter Philip Molnar. Phil, welcome.
6: Thank you so much for having me, Maureen.
3: What is San Diego's current rate of inflation?
6: So from March 2020 to March 2021, prices increased 4.1%. That's according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. So that is basically our inflation rate, and that includes everything from food to gasoline to housing, used vehicle costs, just about everything is all piled into that number.
3: And where does San Diego stand in relation to other areas of the country?
6: The Bureau of Labor Statistics released data for 12 different cities yesterday. They cover about 22 metro areas, but they're on a bi-monthly schedule, so they only gave us 12 cities yesterday. But of those 12 cities, San Diego was second place. Only Tampa had a higher inflation rate. So yes, we were quite high. Tampa had an inflation rate of 4.9%, which was a little bit higher than us.
3: You know, when we hear the word inflation, we may think it's just something economists worry about. How does inflation impact an individual person's or family's finances?
6: So I think one of the first places you're gonna notice prices going up or inflation affecting you is in food costs. So in San Diego, year over year, our price for food is up 4.8% annually. That includes just about everything, meat, poultry, fish, eggs, bakery products, alcoholic beverages. So that's where it might hit you first. Another way it might is gas prices. So, gas prices are way up across California, but for all types of gas here in San Diego, it's up 14.2% year over year. So, those are two things, especially you know, gas to get to work or to get to the grocery store. And then, once you get to the grocery store, prices are going to be more. So those are probably the two main ways you're going to notice it first. But there's other stuff, too, such as housing, energy costs in your home, you know, buying a used vehicle, even medical care. All of that stuff is up.
3: And why specifically are food prices increasing?
6: So food is sort of interesting. There's two different things going on. One, there's been a few supply chain disruptions during the pandemic that have yet to recover. You know, we import a lot of food here in San Diego County and all that stuff. But another thing going on right now is a lot of restaurants are reopening across the nation. So if you're buying food for your home, you're also competing with a restaurant. So it's creating scarcity and prices are going up.
3: Have these price increases been going on throughout the pandemic, or is it just recently?
6: It's mainly in the last two months that prices have really shot up. So our inflation has increased about 2% in a two-month period. So if we were looking at inflation back in November, you know, early fall, stuff like that, inflation was just about normal around that 2% range. But in the last two months is where things have really increased. And a large part of it is gasoline prices.
3: Does San Diego typically have a higher inflation rate than the rest of the country?
6: Yes. So San Diego always has a higher inflation rate. It's always in the top one or two cities. And the reason for that is our high housing costs because housing costs gets put into the inflation rate. So we're always going to be higher. So in the case of the data that came out yesterday, what happened is inflation increased everywhere across the nation. And it just so happens that it always runs higher in San Diego. So if it increases everywhere, we're going to always look like we have the highest inflation rate. So that's part of the reason why there wasn't anything really strongly in particular that happened in San Diego in the last 12 months that was different than other parts of the nation. It's just inflation always runs really hot. So we just rose the tide along with everybody else.
3: So is this inflation hike something to be worried about? What did economists tell you?
6: It sort of depends on the economist you talk to. But the local one I talked to, Alan Jin, an economist over at the University of San Diego, he says this is a sign that the economy is just getting back to normal and things are going well. People are spending more money and that's causing prices to rise. So that's one way to look at it. And of course, a lot of officials at the Biden administration had actually anticipated inflation rising during this period. And their thought is that it's temporary. This is sort of the boost of the economy getting back, and things might be able to slow down a little bit as the year goes on.
3: I have been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune business reporter Philip Molnar. Philip, thank you.
6: Thanks for having me.
1: The San Diego Board of Supervisors recently delayed voting on a proposal that would lift a number of barriers to the region's tribes in expanding their reservations. If repealed, the decades-old restrictions would phase out restrictions in obtaining liquor licenses, and would set up a tribal liaison to foster communication between the county and each of the region's 18 tribal governments. Though a new vote is set for May 5th, the decision to delay a ruling on the policy has been met with sharp criticism by tribal leadership, who see the outdated restrictions as part of a larger legacy of racism and discrimination in county law. Joining me to discuss the proposal is Chairman Bo Mazzetti of the Rincon Band of the Luiseno Indians. Chairman Mazzetti, welcome.
5: Good morning. Thank you for having me.
1: Chairman Mazzetti, can you begin by telling us what the repeal of this decades-old policy hopes to achieve?
5: Yes, we need to clarify. The way the policy was implemented in 1994 basically said that the county will oppose all fee of trust or land that tribes are going to purchase or want to purchase, the county will oppose those uh, for gaming purposes. That has evolved into the San Diego County Board of Supervisors opposing all lands a tribe may be able to purchase back. That so we're buying our own land back. I want to make that clear. You know, <clears throat> So it became a blanket opposition opposing any lands a tribe uh, may purchase. Uh, in our case, all the lands we purchased, with the exception of one, are in the very middle of our reservation.
1: So how will these changes benefit the Native community
5: in the region? What this proposal uh, provided by Supervisor Desmond would do would repeal the blanket opposition and would say, OK, let's look at a land purchased by a tribe on a case-by-case basis, not just a blanket no an opposition. You know, I want to make it clear to not many tribes of the 18 in San Diego County have the economic base or opportunity to buy back their own land. So this is not going to be a mass purchase by tribes of a bunch of land. It's just not going to happen.
1: What was your response to the delay in voting on this?
5: Well, my response is a slap in the face to the tribes in San Diego County. And I say that because uh, no one called from the board or staff that had questions. Had they had any questions, we'd have been glad to to answer that. If you'll notice also during the board hearing, there was no opposition at all.
1: A large component of the policy in question here stems from a blanket policy the county has had in place for over 20 years, which blocks tribal fee-to-trust applications. How has that made it more difficult for tribes to add land to their respective reservations?
5: It adds in the public comment Period and time frame, which is required under federal law. Some of these applications, when we buy a, let's say we buy a piece of land, for us it's within our reservation boundaries. What we've been trying to get back, our own land. The process is that first of all, the land has to be free and clear, a clear title, so there cannot be any kind of cloud on the title. When we get the piece of property to that point, then we can petition the federal government to take this land into trust status on behalf of the tribe. The way it works, the title goes to the United States government, and it reads, for the beneficial use, in this case of the Rincon tribe. The process, how long does it take? It could take up to 12 years. I can give you examples of 12 years to do this. It does not happen 30, 60 days, 90 days. It takes years to get a piece of property to be actually put back under tribal jurisdiction. To
1: what extent do you think this policy is rooted in larger racist and discriminatory policies involving the region's tribes?
5: Originally, when this was put into, into place in 1994, there was a big concern, oh, Indians are going to have these casinos all over the place, that traffic, everything, the, crimin- the crime, oh, all this stuff's going to happen, the county's going to have to pick up more time with the deputy sheriffs, the fire, all of these various scare tactics, which were basically unknown, but they were utilized. Actually, if you look at what has happened, just the opposite has happened. The tribes far exceed anybody's expectation in terms of what we donate to various community organizations. The services we provide, our tribe, along with San Pasquale tribe, just uh, started our own ambulance service because we have, uh, you know, lack of ambulances in a rural area for emergency responses. So that will be open to the general public too at no cost, the taxpayers, no cost. So it's just what has happened is the reverse of what was stated to happen.
1: Let me ask you this. You know, do you feel that come the time of the new vote next month, that this policy will be ultimately repealed?
5: If it's not, it's a racial and political move if it's not repealed.
1: And let me ask you this. I mean, just ultimately, you know, you, you we keep bringing up the fact that, you know, you all are trying to buy back your land. How do you feel about that?
5: I think it's ludicrous, but it's reality. I have strong feelings about that. You know, give our land back. Well, reality that's not going to happen, you know. So we have we have to, and that's exactly what we're doing. I want to give you an example of the biggest parcel our tribe has purchased, which is about 320 acres to the very east of our reservation, between the La Jolla Reservation and our eastern reservation boundary, 320 acres. It's the mouth of the San Luis Rey River, which is traditionally a culturally very important to all the Losano people. We bought that land back.
1: I've been speaking to Chairman Bo Mazzetti of the Rencon Band of the Luiseno Indians. Chairman, thank you so much for joining us.
5: Oh, thank you for your time. I appreciate it.
3: The newsletter platform Substack has established itself as a home for name brand journalists who've abandoned mainstream media outlets, that didn't just happen. Substack is paying those writers, and the platform's choices are coming under fire online. Rachel Myro, KQED's senior editor for its Silicon Valley desk, has more. Matt Taibbi,
7: Glenn Greenwald, Matthew Iglesias. If you know their work and you're a fan, you might be subscribing to their newsletters on Substack, now that they're no longer operating out of traditional newsrooms like The Guardian, Vox, and The Atlantic. Substack is venture capital financed, sixty-five million dollars most recently from Andreessen Horowitz name brand Silicon Valley VC. Flush with cash, Substack has approached some big name writers with big money, a quarter of a million dollars in some cases, to seed Substack with people who will draw a crowd. Substack Pro Deals, the company calls them on its blog.
1: Creating a stable of writers, many of whom were already controversial right? Because controversy is what drives attention in a social media context.
7: Sarah T. Roberts co-directs UCLA's Center for Critical Inquiry. Now, new media outlets scooping up headline-grabbing talent is nothing new. Publishers have done it for centuries, Hollywood movie studios, and now social media platforms too. But Roberts says Substack hasn't been transparent about what it's doing.
1: It's vetting and choosing certain people to give them a platform that it supports financially, and that is an editorial decision, which makes them something other than a neutral platform with no politics.
7: Substack declined to comment for this story, but company leaders are posting at length online to counter attacks from critics who are starting to pay close attention to the subset of Substack writers who get the juicy deals.
1: The whiteness, the maleness, the libertarian right wingness of the group. you know, is pretty self-evident.
7: Some non-pro Substack writers are so offended they're leaving the platform and encouraging their readers to do the same. For instance, one writer who identifies as trans last month called out the platform for giving massive advances to writers whose work includes, quote, extreme trans eliminationist rhetoric. Company leaders replied in another blog post. Here's a bit read by a colleague of mine since, again, Substack wouldn't comment.
0: More than 30 writers have now signed pro deals, and they cover a range of issues, none that can be reasonably construed as anti-trans, and a range of backgrounds. More than half are women, and more than a third are people of color.
7: Not that the company is sharing its Substack pro roles publicly. Also unclear how many disaffected Substack writers and their readers are leaving the platform. Substack's biggest problem, though, may be the fact it's proved it's possible to make VC money off of newsletters. Now Facebook and Twitter are getting into the game, and they have a lot more eyeballs and money to offer writers.
3: That was KQED's Silicon Valley Desk Senior Editor Rachel Myro reporting. <music>
1: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. Our local Mexican-American community has been hit hard by the pandemic, disproportionately hard. In a new episode of KPBS's border podcast, Port of Entry, host Alan Lilienthal talks with a Mexican-American family centered in Chula Vista. The family's hoping their COVID story might be able to help other families like theirs rebuild trust in the public health system that's trying to reach them.
8: Okay, so the Covarrubias family. They're a big family centered in Chula Vista, a city in San Diego County just 20 minutes north of the U.S.-Mexico border. And like a lot of Mexican-American families here, they have members on both sides of the wall. And despite the border between them, the family is super close. Cousins are really more like siblings.
9: We grew up very tight, very close, always at one another's homes.
8: Big family get-togethers filled with lots of laughter and mariachi sing-alongs are sort of their thing. Santiago Covarrubias was one of the patriarchs of the family, and he was always getting nominated to cook his famous homemade carnitas and chicharrones for the gatherings.
9: Delicious, everyone wanted that too. Every time we go to parties, hey, can Santiago make the food, (laughs) you know?
8: Basically, for the Covarrubias crew, La familia es todo. Here's Carmen's cousin Jose. We didn't have much, you know, we come from very humble humble beginnings, but you know, there's a lot of love and there's
0: a lot of pride where we came from and pride in, in our last name and who we are and just familia and family, that's, you know, that's what it was all about for us growing up.
8: For the Covarrubias, the troubles started in November right as COVID cases were beginning to skyrocket on both sides of the border. Santiago was in Mexico dealing with legal issues, and while he was there, his sister-in-law passed away. As a family man, Carmen says Santiago felt like there was just no way he could miss the funeral for his wife's sister. Look, this is a close-knit Mexican-American family. A family that shows up for each other, especially in moments of need. Santiago and the rest of the family had been taking social distancing, mask wearing, and staying home pretty seriously. They trusted the advice from the CDC and public health officials. But the family had made it almost a year through the pandemic without anyone getting super sick or dying. So like a lot of us, Santiago started relaxing, unfortunately right at the wrong time. Carmen told her dad not to go to the funeral, but she said he told her there are just some things, like the death of a family member, where you have to put some trust in God and take a risk so you can be there for your family. So, Santiago flew to the funeral, to be by his family's side. A few days later, though, Santiago just didn't feel right. But Carmen says he was the last to admit it.
9: I don't know if it's the machismo in them, where they have this pride, where they don't want to say, yeah, I'm feeling sick.
8: Carmen says Santiago talked to his family over the phone. He told them he must have caught a bad cold. But he never lost his sense of smell or taste, so he assured them there was no way it was COVID.
9: I would ask my dad, how are you feeling? And he would tell me, I'm fine, I'm fine. I don't want you to worry, but I can tell, you know you know your parents. Finally, I started realizing he was getting worse, so I told my dad, you need to come back now.
8: Eventually, Carmen convinced Santiago to fly back to Tijuana. And when he got there, his brother, Juan Jose, immediately saw that Santiago was in way worse shape than he was letting on.
9: So when my dad finally came back, um, my uncle, as a matter of fact, picked him up at the airport in Tijuana and took him straight to the hospital. They called me around 3 o'clock in the morning to tell me that my dad was COVID positive um, and they were going to admit him.
8: COVID rules prevented the family from being able to visit. And Carmen says it was really hard to connect with her dad.
9: It was bad because he couldn't really hear us. So when we would try to communicate with him, it was hard because he already is going through hearing problems. And then we have this machine blowing in him and it was really hard to communicate. I was on the doctors you need to call me every day you need to call me when this happens or whatever you know that has to be the hardest thing I believe when you have not just a parent but a loved one um, in the hospital and you can't even be by their side it's very hard I feel very bad because I was not able to be there with him in the room to tell my dad everything's gonna be okay. You got this. You're gonna fight through this. You know, and that was the toughest thing that we struggled with accepting the fact that we can't even be with him.
8: Santiago was having trouble breathing, so he got put on a ventilator. And from there, it was a quick downward spiral. On November 28th, just one week after he went to the hospital, Santiago took his last breath.
9: I never thought that this is how my dad would go out. You know, I always thought, oh, you know, old age or something. But COVID, you know, took him.
8: The Covarrubias family was crushed by Santiago's death, but they didn't really get the time to properly mourn. Because just a few weeks later, two more Covarrubias family members got the virus.
9: So when we called my uncle, we said, Tio, you know, how are you feeling? And his response was, I don't feel good. I'm sick. So when he said that, we knew.
1: And that was Carmen Novarubius sharing her family story with Port of Entry host Alan Lilienthal. To hear the rest of the story and to learn more about how the family is using their tragedy to encourage families like theirs to get the COVID vaccine and follow public health advice, listen to Port of Entry online at portofentrypod.org. Or find Port of Entry wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. mcasd.org.